Welcome to the EverSaline podcast, the show that ignites your passion for leadership and empowers you to develop a culture of continuous improvement. I'm your host, Matt Sims, and in each episode, we bring you fascinating insights and invaluable tips from our incredible lineup of guests. What do they all have in common? They share an unwavering dedication to excellence and are the experts in driving engagement, improving metrics, and reducing costs. The Ever So Lean Podcast with Matt Sims. You know it makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Catalyst Consulting Limited. Catalyst Consulting exists to help people and organisations work better today and be ready for tomorrow. They have a rich history of igniting business transformation using business agility, lean, Six Sigma, strategy deployment, agile and change management. They can help you and your organisation to develop the skills necessary to work and manage differently. To find out more, check out catalystconsulting.co.uk. Today is a very special show as we're talking about an industry that since childhood has been a fascinating place for me and an area that personally I find super exciting. It's all about space. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's a mind-blowing subject that has such immense challenges and so many unknowns. I've always been intrigued by the vision of space travel, other worlds, alien species, the International Space Station, all the missions from NASA, especially the moon landings in the 60s and the 70s. You've got the Mars rovers, and more recently, China put in a rover on the moon that was called Rabbit. That happened a couple of years ago. And then the dawn of the commercial space flight with Blue Origin and SpaceX. But closer to home, here in the UK is the UK Space Agency who recently partnered with Virgin Galactic to commence satellite launches from UK shores. Wow. <laughs> Leading this team is Ian Annett, who is the Deputy Chief Executive at the UK Space Agency. And I'm so delighted to say that Ian is here with us today to give us an insight into the role that continuous improvement plays in the space industry and the work that the UK Space Agency is doing. Ian, a very warm welcome to the Everseline podcast. Oh, hi, Matt. It's good to uh, good to be here and speak to you. I'm glad. I'm glad it's not just me that fumbles my words at the beginning as well. It's, uh... it's, do you know what? It's because it's cold in the studio in the morning. It's freezing cold. Yeah. Um, so it takes me time to warm up. But no one will notice that because I'll get rid of that. <laughs> no one will notice. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to spend with us today. Yeah, it's great. It, it is great. I mean, there's a, there's an awful lot going on now. I know you mentioned launch as well, but there's just so many other things that we're involved with. Like we could fill hours of a podcast with with stuff that we're doing that I'm sure people, well, I find interesting anyway, but I'm sure others would as well. Don't tempt me. Don't, don't. <laughs> I can't believe you're here. This is absolutely amazing. You was one of those people that when I when I reached out to you, I was like probably will ignore me I'll probably never hear anything back and then when you came back I nearly fell off my chair I couldn't believe it yeah well it's it's I mean it's an important part of our job as well isn't it is is getting out to um to spread the love and spread the message and and, and whether it's through podcast whether it's through television or radio interviews or I mean, we use many different mediums now you know we've we've engaged an artist to take photographs in order to make sure that we get the message across around space debris oh wow um, and how we deal with it so you know, you've got to find many different ways these days to get your message across to a whole host of people who think, I mean, they don't, they're not all like me. You know, I think very differently as an engineer and, uh, and I clearly have a way of, um, of organising my own self, which is probably completely different to the way that my wife is, who's not an engineer. <laughs> you have a certain mindset, don't you, when you work in that sort of field? Yeah. Um, I, with lean and a continuous improvement culture, in my home, I'm very logical. You know, the kitchen to me is laid out where there's the least amount of waste involved. Like everything's where I can reach it. But yeah. my wife's not like that, and things are all over the place. And I wander around like, where's that saucepan? It goes in that drawer. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Uh -huh. I'm sad, sad to say I know exactly how you feel. But, uh, but yeah, and it's a really good mind. I mean, a, I mean, I think I think certainly when you're dealing in this kind of industry, it's a really good mindset to have anyway. And um, I, I do say that space is not just for scientists or not just for engineers. We do need, we, we need everybody from great business minds through to lawyers, uh, through to uh, those who understand you know, they can they can think about the philosophical aspects of whether we should be mining the moon or mining asteroids as well. But um, but we definitely need our engineers to get some of the most technical things 
up and running and right. So I can I can certainly, from a lean perspective, just you know, there, there's a lot of advocates that are out there for making sure that we can get repeatable, consistent processes, making sure that they're efficient. If it's at the most basic level from things like tool control, but actually it's also about how you can speed up your production and make it make it as efficient and effective and as safe as possible. Of course, where you've got repeatable processes. So lean definitely has a has a place in the uh, in the industry. It's really interesting what you said about the uh, conveying of information because times have changed. Like when when I was a kid and I, and when you was a kid, like things like podcasts didn't exist, the internet wasn't around, and times have changed. And, and my kids now, I've got a ten year old and a six year old. They listen to podcasts all the time. Yeah. It's the way people get information nowadays, isn't it? It's the big thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I, th- I think you've got to be able to trust and verify as well, isn't it? So um, it's great to hear some of the podcasts. Sometimes I listen to them and think, well, is that really quite right? And you've got to go away and do a little bit of work and just say, yeah. you know, either that statistic is wrong or right. I'm, <laughs> it's I'm, not governed, is it? <laughs> no, it's great. That's it, yeah, yeah. Do you know what would be really cool that I don't think has been done? You, you might know better than me. Has anybody ever recorded a podcast from space? I would be surprised if it hasn't because there's been a number of hookups. I remember if you go back to 2016 and um, Tim Peake was in the ISS and uh, he had something called the Principia uh, Principia mission that was running and it reached out over to over I think it was something like two million school children across oh, yeah. the UK and um, I'm pretty sure there were interactive sessions and they have done interviews with with astronauts on the um, on the ISS as well you see those quite frequently so it depends on where how you define it as a podcast or not as well really i emailed um jeff bezos about a year ago and i said jeff i've got an idea for you how about the first ever amazon delivery outside of the, uh, the earth yeah. can we send a package to the space station he never responded i don't know if he's gone with that idea or not but it's i've never seen it it probably ended up at the neighbor's house <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's, it's over on mars <laughs> <laughs> that's right Brilliant. It was lobbed over the fence in Mars. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us uh, a little about your, your career story. How did you get to where you are now? It's an amazing achievement. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've, I've never been a person who've, who's planned every single move in their, in their career. Um, although having said that, I spent over 30 years in the Royal Navy where a, a lot of that is, is kind of planned for you. But I, I always used to see people throughout their career saying, I've got to do this job next to get to that job, to get to here and to get to, you know, either command or to do something else. And, and I... I kind of started off doing things that I really, really enjoyed, and and then I'd look at the next job, and if I really, really enjoyed it, and I do remember, I mean, my background's as a weapon engineer, so so that means um, weapons, so so uh, missiles, guns, uh, communications, and sensors as well. And sort of midway through my career, I was lucky enough to be sent off to go and do a master's degree in guided weapon systems, which I always describe as it's rocket science with a two-week unit on warheads at the end of it, because it's really the bit that goes bang that makes it different. Because you do aerodynamics, you do propulsion theory, you do control theory, so all of the aspects that are the, the basic fundamentals there of rocketry, you do as part of the course. And in fact, I remember in the, in the labs there, they had the control rings from V2 missiles from the Second World War. Wow. And that kind of got me fascinated with the look at all this technology that's there and has been there for, for years. So, so I did that master's. And then a little bit later on in my career, I was lucky enough to serve in what we call a joint job. So a job that's responsible across all the services. And I was the program director for Skynet, which is, it's, it's not a Terminator movie, actually. Skynet is the uh, Ministry of Defence uh, largest communications satellite constellation and it's been around since 1969 I think the Skynet one that was was put up and and that really started to get my interest in actually understanding that space is as a domain itself primarily of course being used for communications for the armed forces but then actually there's just so much going on out there anyway and then as I came to the the, the latter stages of my career I was doing more and more work with uh, other space agencies with the US I had responsibility for strategic communications in the Navy and then this role came up at the agency and and I thought right I, I can't hang around and and so I was kind of I jumped before I was pushed and I was very lucky to uh, to be able to come into it but I've, I've always had a fascination with aviation with aerospace I'm technically minded that's guess why I became an engineer and I, I, I really found the sweet spot in um, in this role. It's it's. I wish I'd been doing it for longer, but you know, I, I get up every morning with a spring in my step. I bet you do. I'm so envious. It's. I think it's really important that you enjoy what you do, isn't it? Yeah. I, there, there are there are definitely definitely that. There are always three. There are three lessons that I, I would advocate for anybody in in life as well. When you look at a role, you say first of all you've got to enjoy what you do. 
Um, secondly, you've got to feel as though you're making a difference. And, and thirdly, you've got to feel as though you're appreciated for making that difference as well. I mean, I, I certainly in my current role, I, I definitely get a, a big uptick on all of those. I mean, none of us get out of bed and, and all, not, they're not always in unif- unison, are they, every single day? No. But, but broadly, when you look back over the last month or year or whatever it is, you know, you, you look back and I think, yeah, that's definitely with that. And I think a lot of people feel the same in the space industry, which is huge across the UK. You think there's something like 47,000 people who are in the space sector in um, in the UK alone it's it's worth over 16 and a half billion pounds worth to the economy and we export almost six billion pounds worth of that space economy I always say the heuristic I use is we build more small satellites in the UK than anywhere outside of the US you have to be checking that as one of your podcast facts now as well <laughs> yeah, I'll um, bring you up Ian you're actually but, factually correct there <laughs> yeah but, but, that, but that point being is actually we make a lot and we're really good at it and so space is actually good for the economy and you think about those people who work in the space industry here in the UK their productivity is over two and a half times you know other industry normal industry in the UK so each and every one in the space industry is adding back into the economy far more than the than the average as well so it's, it's great for economy as well as of course all of the good things about exploration about science about earth observation about climate change um, so the, yeah, the the list goes on as to why it's and it's really cool yeah of course, that should be the top of the list it's yeah. a really cool place to, to work in I bet people like, when you tell people what you do I bet they're just non-stop questions just fly at you yeah there is there is that yeah yeah from the barber uh, <laughs> onwards as well but it makes for a great conversation it's interesting because it's it's an area that just touches everybody's lives isn't it and and sometimes people don't realize it but whether it's the apple phone on your watch or or you know or whether it's the sat nav in your car or indeed whether you're drawing money from the bank then all of it relies on space technology you know a climate change people talk about what about putting rockets into space but if you t- I think there are something like 49 climate variables that the UN monitor and half of them you can only monitor from space so it's it's really important to get things up there you know sustainably but space is a really really important part of making sure that we can steward our own planet carefully as well people don't think of that you don't think of that side of things you don't think of the economy stuff that's stuff that kind of goes under the radar for Joe Bloggs like myself we just think of space exploration as going to the moon going to Mars the space station you don't think of all that stuff behind it yeah and it, and it provides i mean it, there is they say there is that economy all the fun i mean financial transactions you know in the city of london now are all made automatically and and of course you can imagine share prices changing so quickly that these things are done and the transactions have to be made on very accurate time basis and that time basis comes from gps in space the loss of gps is always a you know a, a concern i'm sure we've all been in what we call urban canyons you know you're going down a street and you can't get a gps signal that says you're miles away yeah but if if somebody's trying to do that on purpose, it can create quite a you know quite a challenge. And 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 if if you were to turn GPS off and that we weren't able to use it, there's a report out there called the Blackett Review. It estimated that that's that's around about a billion pounds a day to the economy that you take a wow. hit on. Not notwithstanding that you still couldn't go and get your kids from school or from wherever you're picking them up if you don't know where it is. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's a real hit in the economy. So these things are really, really important from an economic and a security perspective. And it, and it gives us an element of, of leverage in the world as well, because if you're a credible, technical, space-faring nation, it just adds to that diplomatic power that you've got in your standing in the world. So, you know, whether it's, as I say, whether it's security, whether it's prosperity or whether it's knowledge, all of those things are really, really important. And, and space as an industry, as a technology, gives you all of those things. I've got this really cool app on my phone that you hold it up to the sky and it basically tells you what every star is. And every time a satellite flies over, it tracks the satellite and tells you what it is. Yeah. It's really cool. Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few of them that, that are out there. I mean, I've, got a, I've, I've got a phone full of apps like that including <laughs> including augmented reality ones as well where you can you, you know you can walk across the surface of the moon from the Apollo lander and there's some great ones that I mean people, wow. people are only limited by their imagination but but I mean those ones are fascinating as well when you're staring up at the uh, at the sky and you can see what's there I mean it's, I've got I've got a telescope at home and you know, there used to be those days where you'd have a telescope and you have to look it up on the tables and you have to get the yeah. inclination right and things like this. Now all I do is I hook my iPhone up to it and it tells me exactly <laughs> where to point. Um, brilliant. And, and I'm, not, I'm not quite sure whether that's better or worse, but it, on a cold night, it's definitely better because you can yes. look at things as uh, yeah, but yeah, those those apps are um, are particularly for tracking the satellites or looking where the geostationary ones are. It's amazing. The, the ones that are in the ones that are in low Earth orbit, of course, 
the, the Kuipers of this world, the Starlinks of this world, the OneWebs of this world. A little bit more difficult to track because they're coming around quite quickly as well. But you just need to kind of sit back and you can see those appear on a clear night quite easily. If you stare at the sky long enough, I always think that you will see something going across like a dot of some sort, which is a satellite normally, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And if, you th if, if they've not long been launched as well, you'll see a trail of them following behind each other in a bit of a line uh, because they haven't, they haven't fully spread out. Remember over the summer just lying out in the garden and you'd see a, a trail of four or five satellites after each other and, and that's because they will have been recently come out of their dispenser and they haven't quite got or spread out into their own orbit yet. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Do you, do you remember a few years ago that Elon Musk launched that car? Is it the road stuff? Yes. And the, yeah. with the spaceman and it was playing um, David Bowie, I think, as it went up or something. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I stumbled across a website the other day that's tracking that and it's live and it tells you exactly where it is, how many miles it's done. And it, I read like a distance it's now travelled, it could have driven every road in the UK six times. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. I thought, I, it, I, would, I would have thought it's done much more. There was a Tesla Roadster, wasn't it, he put up there? That's it, yeah. And um, I, I did read something about that the other day. That it's on its, I mean, it's on its way, I don't know whether it's on its way to Mars, but it's on its way somewhere. Apparently, yeah, I think the orbit that it does, it, it goes out as far as Mars, goes round Mars, swings back, comes up, and then goes round us, and then it, that's the orbit uh, that it seems to be taking. All right, it'll be out of warranty by that point, then, in that case. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine how many miles it's done. Like, yeah. It's amazing, though. Um, and apparently the batteries, still work so i know there's no sound in space but in theory it's probably still playing that song yeah yeah i mean that you know that's the other thing isn't it as well because if, if you're going to be a responsible operator of of, of space as well i mean and, I, and you, you, we all know why that spacex did that and it got a great amount of publicity um, out of it as well but we do have to be responsible operators about what we put in space and make sure that we don't create it as a more cluttered space i mean i think there are something like a million objects that are bigger than a you know a 10p piece wandering around in orbit and I mean if you think there are something like 6,000 satellites and about 4,000 of them work so there's a lot of defunct satellites and then you've got rocket bodies that are just still in orbit up there as well so we've got to be very careful about how we look after that domain that you know that 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 part of the environment and do no more harm so you know we're signatories to what we call the long-term sustainability accords within the UN which means that if we license launches from the UK and we license satellites in the UK they've got to abide by those and they've got to be able to deorbit after a while and then similarly we're doing some work with a couple of companies ClearSpace and Astroscale and actively promoting how we remove how we how can we go around and remove this debris you know how can you either fling it out into space or how can you fling it down and uh, and get it to burn up in the atmosphere or how can you get longer use out of satellites can you refuel them can you replace bits and and there are some really i mean quite i say crazy ideas not crazy ideas but you've got to start somewhere you know so can you can you harvest junk satellites can you almost reprocess them in space you know and can you build other things using them if you if you've got say for example solar panels on one particular uh, satellite that are still working could you take those off and could you use them on a either a new satellite body or another satellite body none of those of course are, are anywhere near fruition at the moment but it's it's the way you think about these things and saying actually how are we going to look after this environment in the future this is important to us all and if we if we rot it up then it'll become a real real challenge and, and it'll be like the you know the oceans and the atmosphere and um around the globe we've we've, we've got to make sure we look after this one it's like 5s it's ultimate challenge yes <laughs> you've got things moving at thousands of miles an hour and, and yeah. you've got to keep it tidy <laughs> oh, it is it, it, it is i mean and that's some of the great work that these companies have been doing because if I'll, I'll call it an uncooperative target but you know you might have a satellite that's spinning or tumbling in space and if you're going to capture that somehow how do you do it? Because you've got to get into the same orientation of it. You've got to spin at the same rate. You've got to tumble at the same rate. And because otherwise, if you knock it out of orbit, you know it might come down on a might come down somewhere you don't want it to come down. And and that then invokes a whole host of legal questions about who's responsible and other things like that. So so getting it right is really really important. And there are some fantastic minds and some of the companies in the UK and across the globe that are looking at these uh, these challenges that we've got, so that you don't get almost things like flecks of paint that can collide with the international space station and give them a chip in the windscreen equivalent yeah you know to their cupola so it's it's really really important there's everything up there from you know spanners astronaut gloves and things like <laughs> this that are, that are wandering around and uh, we've got to do our best to clean it up i suppose even the smallest like, like you say the fleck of paint at the speed that it's moving an impact of that could do some serious damage yeah exactly that i mean uh, in low earth orbit it's traveling at 17 and a half thousand miles an hour 
and they're, they're, they're in different orbits as well. So if you've got two items that are doing 17,500 miles an hour then, and they collide with each other, you have what's known as a conjunction, then you know, if they're satellites or bigger, that creates even more mess and, and that you know, blocks out that particular, or that particular part of the orbit. And then they go on to collide with other things and then all of a sudden you've got this growing mass of debris and it's, it's something called the Kessler syndrome whereby you, know, you, just, you just get more and more debris. If you've seen Gravity, it's that kind of Armageddon type. I was just going to say, is it George Clooney and Sandra Bullock? I think it is, yeah, it's that one, and, yeah. And it's all about that. Yeah. The whole film is about that. That's exactly what's going through my head as you were saying it. Yeah, yeah. So we, and, and it's it's a real risk, so we've got to make sure that we we um, we look at And every now and again, you do see these conjunctions occur. I mean, my staff will, if, if, there's, a, if there's a concern or a warning of something colliding and it'll come down somewhere, then if it trips up below a certain threshold, they'll let me know. But every now and again, um, then satellites do do collide, and you know it could be with a bits of old rocket body, and they do create a debris field, which is there almost forever, really. Would you go if you had the chance to go up into space? Would you do it? Yeah, of course I would. Of course I would. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm a little bit too old for it now. I mean, well, some of the astronauts that, of course, were trained when they were much younger uh, have gone up to space when they're quite old in their 70s and uh, and 80s. Uh, I was I was really lucky enough last year to meet uh, Charlie Duke. He was on Apollo 16. He was the youngest man to walk on the moon. And he said to me, when he said, he said, I'm still the youngest person to walk on the moon, you know, in 84 or whatever he was, because, of course, we hadn't 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 been back so he was yeah. he was the youngest but we I, I think there have been others who've gone up on the space shuttle in their 70s and 80s i mean you know william shatner went up of course with blue origin didn't he yeah. as well um, and i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily do it as as a, as a as a space tourist but do you know what if i could be in the astronaut program and was getting involved with the science and spending time up on the iss I mean, that would be absolutely fascinating, wouldn't it? It'd be really, it would be great. There, there's a, I can't remember what it's called now, but there's a, there was a film and it's based on the true story. It's how they selected the first 10 astronauts for the Gemini program. The right stuff. That's it, the right stuff. And they, they've kind of got similar backgrounds to you. And it's amazing watching them go through the process and the impact on their families and how competitive they got with each other for that seat. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. I, I, we've, we've, the, the UK's been really lucky because um, at the last Council of Ministers, which is the, 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 the meeting that defines the budgets that are going forward for our participation in the European Space Agency, then um, they announced the next cohort of ESA astronauts. And uh, the UK's got three astronauts on that programme now. So, Brilliant. you know, Rosemary Coogan, who's the, the primary candidate, she's now fully in their astronaut pro- program, but we've got two others there as well. And and so, you know, the UK, you just think forward, of course, and I, and I think he's sort of got a place on the one of the, I can't remember which number of the Artemis missions it is. Con- con- conceivably, it could be a UK astronaut that finds himself going off to the moon uh, on an Artemis mission in a few years' time. And that then, of course, serves as a stepping stone for further things beyond the moon. It's it's not a rerun of the Apollo missions. There are so many different things onto the moon. You, know, you need to find the right place on the moon where you can get power and you can get water. And that looks as though it's around the poles because some of it's in deep shadow for a long, long period of time. So you'll find frozen water there, which you can use for either, you know, you can... Uh, spit it and get fuel out of it, or you can use it. But also, if in a similar place, if you can get high enough, you've almost got consistent access to the sun for energy as well. So if you can find something around the poles, then there's an option for, for habitation on, on the moon. And as I say, that then leads to a stepping stone for going on for the next level of exploration and off to uh, off to Mars. Um, but then we think that through as well, because again, the, you, we, we, we ask ourselves the questions about, sh- should it be humans that go off to Mars? I mean... Elon Musk has, has definitely nailed his colours to the master on that one. Yeah, there, there is a long, long debate about whether it should be humans and whether we're fit, because we're not really designed to be in space, or whether it should be robots that should be going off to um, uh, to space, to Mars and beyond. I mean, our first version of that, of course, is a Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 that were launched in, I think it was September 1977. They're, they've gone out through the Earth sphere. Now, the Earth sphere is the, the, the furthest point is a dust cloud that's probably the furthest reaches of, of gravity from our solar system and they're traveling beyond that now they're millions and millions of of, of miles away and, and they've got a, a gold record on them as well with instructions as to how to make a, pictures as to how, how to make a record player um, and you never know whether something or someone or another world may well find those at some point wandering through the universe. 13-time single prize winner Dr. Jeffrey Liker and Toyota Kata author Mike Rother 
have created the Improvement Kata and Coaching Kata online course. This inexpensive, compact program is designed to transform your thinking and approach, making you a highly skilled learner and coach. Engage in deliberate practice to turbocharge your progress. You also get lifetime access to the materials, including all of the bonus interviews. Why pay up to 10 times the price elsewhere? Listening to some consultant. When you can gain direct insights from the masters themselves. Skip the rest and go with the best. Join us today and embark on your journey to excellence. Just click on the link below to start your journey. It's amazing to think, isn't it? Amazing. Look, well, if you're if you're looking for some some geezer that's got absolutely no background in space travel, you want to send up there. You know where I am, all right? Just give me a ring, and yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll see if I can fit it I'll in. Bear that moment. <laughs> yeah. Continuous improvement in the space industry. How difficult is space? Let's be honest. We don't we don't want to frighten people off, and we always say space is hard, right? Um, and that that manifests itself in a lot of companies who never make it to space, and a, a, a lot of those who launch them. Uh, launch satellites into space or objects into space having a number of failures that you wear those scars on your back almost with a sense of pride alongside those satellite manufacturers of course who uh, put objects up into space or deep space exploration or put you know Beagle 2 was another one that the UK put out on Mars and kind of didn't work of course so it is hard uh, but it's getting better in many ways with the technology that you use with the miniaturization you can use what I call commercial off-the-shelf type components in some areas so you need to work out where things need to be hardened say for radiation in space and where they don't rather than it all being uh, being hardened and I, th- I think it's it's we always try and do things that are harder than we can actually do, don't yeah. we? That's the human nature. And once things are easy, you want to do the next hardest thing. It's it's really important, particularly where cost is a real driver, because space is very much commercial space now, and and it's it's driven by a lot of commercial operators. As I say whether it's you take the likes of Elon Musk or whether you take the likes of Jeff Bezos um, or uh, or OneWeb or other you know there's many other launch companies as well. But it's not all about launch, of course. But it's driven commercially rather than governments. So they need to make it as efficient as possible and uh, making sure that they reduce the margin for errors and risk as much as they possibly can and, th- and therefore putting in repeatable and consistent processes about production about processes about training is, is, is kind of really really important and I've, I've been lucky enough to see a, a number of different uh, manufacturers of either satellites or of rockets across across the globe and they come in many many shapes or forms i've seen those that are highly regularized and and you can tell that they've had the lean six sigma team in <laughs> And, and they're part of this, you know, what they call Kaizen, this continuous improvement piece. Um, and you've got to balance that continuous improvement with, again, if you've got a license, uh, take a rocket, for example, you've got to get a license, a rocket licensed. And you don't want to make too many changes, otherwise you find yourself constantly stuck in a licensing regime. So it's that balance between consistent production and then continuous improvement. But, but yeah, I've seen some of the others who are smaller, but, but equally ambitious. It's, it's, it's like a microbrewery. <laughs> you know, it's in the lock-up garage at the back and there's, there's bits in boxes somewhere. <laughs> Little kit you put together. <laughs> yeah, and, and they, could, they could definitely do with a bit of continuous improvement. But because they're in the space of saying, well, actually, we're going to go to bigger premises, we're going to do things differently, they're always kind of moving forward. And that kind of leaning process hasn't necessarily bedded in. They're really, they're really, they're really still really effective, uh, really effective companies, but they haven't really had the benefit of having um, those, experience. those, say, those experience. Yeah. But, but it's really important. I mean, the Europeans use something called a, for, certainly for procurement and how they bring space agents use something called ECSS. And it's a process that's used in order to go from soup to nuts and, and building, whether it's satellites, whether it's rocket or space qualified equipment. And that's, you would recognize that from a lean perspective of the phases that you go through of the assurance levels that you go through and uh, the translation of that into the standards that you need when you're building as well. Um, so it's definitely out there, and it has it's it's a it's an absolute ripe space for uh, lean and continuous improvement. So with, with the like you said before, the the number of commercial companies now that are involved, and it's not just the government. So there's so many out there. Is there best practice sharing and benchmarking that goes on between the different companies, or is it all very secretive? You get a bit of both, of course, because people want to retain a bit of IP or they want to re- retain competitive advantage. I, d- I do see that there are economies of scale where um, they need you know, facilities or infrastructure sometimes. So if you take, for example, here at the, the northernmost reaches of the UK in Shetland and you've got Saxaboard Space Centre and they're building three pads 
up there as a start, three launch pads, and they're to accommodate different operators as well. So there's an element of sharing what the operators need in order to make sure they can provide them with the, um, with, the, with, the with the right facilities. And, and there is a bit about you know sharing lessons learned uh, as well, what, what has worked, what hasn't worked. There are a number of alliances around. So there's, again, in the UK, there's the Scottish Spaceports Alliance that brings the spaceports together, not just the Scottish spaceports as well, and those in the UK as well. So they all get together and say, okay, how can we, how can we best operate? How can we best operate together? Um, and how can we share good, um, good, good practice as well? So there are many operators, and there's the European space launch operators get together as well and share their ideas. Um, so, so it's a, it's a, it is a sh- it is a sharing community in many ways, but of course in many other ways they want to retain their commercial advantage as well. Whether it's about how they make sustainable fuel, how they can produce rocket bodies uh, more cheaply, how they can produce satellites or the payloads that go on those satellites more effectively with greater fidelity of whatever they're doing, whether it's you know whether it's radio frequencies or whether it's um, visual, whether it's earth observation as well. So. It is a bit of a balance of both. It seems to have come on a long way since the 60s where you had Russia against America and they were secretly trying to do it sort of behind closed doors and they were battling each other to get up there. It seems like it's much more open now. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't so long ago, of course, that we were putting missions up through Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, and also uh, using Russian rockets from Baikonur uh, in order to launch um, European Space Agency missions or... You know, one weather missions um, as well, and the of course the conflict in Ukraine, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has put a stop to that for the moment. And so I think there has been a bit of retrenchment between what Russia are doing in space and what China are doing in space, and of course what the rest of the world are doing in um, in space. I always have an element of hope there. There are there are there are two things that keep countries talking, and one of which is the arts, and one of which is science. And the Russian cosmonauts are still up on the ISS as well. Doesn't matter how far you are in the depths of a cold war or a conflict. If if you can at least keep those links going, that gives you a basis upon which to build back when ultimately you know you will. Re- re-engage. I find it very difficult to understand how we will do that with the current conflict in Ukraine, but both arts and science, and particularly things like space, give you that opportunity to, to build up trust in, in due course when we get round to it. I think I saw a video the other day on one of the social medias of like a mock-up of one of those launch pads in the Shetlands, and it was on like a little rocky island just on a, just off the coast, and they had a rocket taken off from it, and it looked amazing. It's so incredible. Yeah, I, I was up in I was up in Shetland just before Christmas, and uh, it was it was windy and uh, it was a bit snowy, but it was fantastic to see. And I have to say, they are a really hardy bunch up there because they were they were slinging from a crane a, a rocket stool, so the the, the 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 framework which a rocket will launch from. And I thought, well, it's just it's going to be far too windy, and uh, it wasn't. And I got sent a photograph the next day, and they they put the thing up, which was fantastic. Fantastic going. So they're making they're making great great progress um, in Shetland on uh, on the launch pads. But similarly, you know, another launch pad that we've got is is in in or it's being built is in Sutherland, which is about as far north as you can drive without getting your feet wet in Scotland. <laughs> and we're working uh, very closely with the Highlands and Islands Enterprise, and again another great company called Orbex that are producing rockets in uh, not far from Inverness in Forres, and, and Orbex are now taking on the construction and the operation of the Sutherland site. So I'm expecting that to, to come along uh, very quickly over the next 12 months um, as they start to do much the same and cut their sites and put a launch pad in. And so I'm, I'm very much hoping that we're looking at, you know, in the next 12 months or so, seeing vertical rockets take off from um, from Shetland and Sutherland as well. Wow, 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 wow. I'm, I'll be taking a holiday. I'll say to my wife, right, we're going to the Shetland Islands. She goes, but it's freezing. I go, don't worry about yeah. that. <laughs> I'll tell you why, why when we get there. No. <laughs> It's, it's interesting when you when you look at the number of launch days available for weather or otherwise and, and you, you you tend to think you know, north of Scotland north either the north coast of Scotland or Shetland you think well it's crazy why would you want to launch from there but when you compare it to the likes of Cape Canaveral who clearly it's much warmer and sunnier for much more of the year but actually they, they face issues with things like electrical storms and therefore you know it's it's not a million miles in terms of difference in terms of launch days. So recently you had you had a rocket launch, didn't you? It took place in Cornwall. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it was. It was uh, we did have a rocket launch, uh, and we successfully launched a rocket into space. So if you, you know, and if you define the space as a hundred kilometers in the Kármán line, then uh, we were definitely well into that. But as many people will be aware, of course, what we what we didn't manage to achieve was completing that mission and putting the satellites, which is the really important bit. We talk about rockets as being really exciting, but the important thing is what the pointy end, of course, is the satellites. And we didn't we didn't quite put the satellites into um, into orbit, which is an immense shame. But we've learned so much from it. I, th- I think what I, you know, what the, the important thing to recognise here is that in order to get to that point alone, took an immense amount of effort. When you think about the licensing, so we had to go back to putting in place the Space Industry Act in 2018. So primary legislation through Parliament that had to be written. Then the space uh, regulations that needed to be pulled together. And so, you know, you, how you go about licensing a launch in the UK, how you have to set up everything from, say, for example, a space accidents investigation board all the way through to the ability to rescue uh, astronauts in space if uh, if you have those capabilities all of those things that have to go into into law and statute before you can get anywhere near planning a, a license and, and then of course you've got to build up the skills in order to uh, license either satellites which we've been doing for a number of years now but actually in this case the new thing was about launching uh, licensing launch and licensing rockets so building up that skills through the civil aviation authority who are the single regulator and then you think about well if you're going to operate from Cornwall how do you how do you create a hazard zone that enables you to do that if you're mixing RP1 so uh, rocket fuel with liquid oxygen yeah that's a hazardous, hazardous activity and and although Spaceport Cornwall in Newquay Airport is not densely populated you've still got population around there so how do you put in place legally and otherwise all of those safety criteria and then even before you take off of course how do you manoeuvre a jet how do you fuel the jet how do you fuel the rocket and then when you've taken it off it's okay you've got to launch it and you've got this long corridor of in this case it was launching off towards the south so you had a long danger area that spread between the southwest tip of of Ireland uh, all the way down to uh, the Canary Islands. And, and of course, there's a fair amount of transatlantic traffic that comes across from there, yeah. which you then have to plan to either divert or cancel. And so you find yourself working with uh, marine agencies because you've got uh, either fairings or first stages that will deposit into the Atlantic. You find yourself working with international colleagues in Ireland who needed to issue a rocket permit or with the Spanish or with the Portuguese or with Eurocontrol who control all of the flights that are coming in and out of Europe. Doing that safely and legally is an immense amount of hard work that requires very close cross-government cooperation. And it kind of sounds, oh, that's really the dull, the really boring, the paperwork bits and things like this. It's not the exciting bits. But unless you got those in place, you would never get Cosmic Girl from um, Virgin Orbit across it, let alone taking off. So getting to that stage and actually proving that and taking off meant that we now have a functioning spaceport here in the UK and we have the wherewithal to license launches within the UK legally. So so we can do all of that. So in the, so, But that's a kind of a long precursor to saying it was probably one of the most exciting things that I've been involved with going down to Cornwall for that first uh, for that first launch and and seeing the whole place humming and working together and the Virgin Orbit team and uh, and the spaceport and to, they had to limit the public entry there was two and a half thousand tickets available which which went quicker than tickets to Glastonbury <laughs> yeah I bet they did <laughs> uh, and um, the the buzz down there was 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 just just immense and I I kind of I always describe it as the the event it was it was like a Tiger Woods shot straight down the middle of the fairway. So everything went to uh, to plan, and the Virgin Orbit team were dealing with all kinds of crazy things that were being lobbed. You know, fishermen that were coming into the range. Did <laughs> you? So we had to kind of call in a few favours and say, can you you know can you um can you communicate with a fisherman from Ireland in order to say can you can you go the other way? Solar flares that were occurring, of course, at the time that could have an impact on the electronics. But seeing the teams respond to all of these things, it was they were taking it in their stride and it was brilliant. And Cosmic Girl, of course, took off and she then went off to the southwest of Ireland and did her racetrack. Um, and, and everything was nominal. It was operating absolutely perfectly and they, they had a perfect drop. And the first stage of the rocket engine, it dropped about 36,000 feet, separates Four seconds later, it ignites and uh, first stage burns for uh, around about 180 seconds. And, 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 it, and it did that absolutely flawlessly. And then uh, first stage came away, second stage ignited and off it went. And that's a longer burn. So it's, it's, it's in excess of 8,000 miles an hour at the end of the first stage. And, um, and the second stage lit and burnt off and then 
there was an anomaly at some point during that towards the latter range of that second stage so it didn't quite have enough juice to get up there and into um into orbit so it was it was just it was all it was so close so close matt there and so you can imagine you know the feeling amongst uh certainly amongst all of those who put all of the effort in and particularly the, the virgin team um could be brilliant throughout the whole course it was it was but as i say it's one of these things where you, you kind of learn and just say about these things you kind of you got to you know you get up you go back you try again um, yeah and 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 that's what we're kind of working on now is trying to understand where the failure occurred and then making sure that the you know, virgin orbit can rectify uh, any issues that they have with the second stage. I mean, it's unusual to have a second stage failure uh, in, in rockets. You tend to have failures in other areas. So, so we go back and look at that and then say, right, you know, what's what's next? And we're, we're working with other government departments. We're working with Virgin Orbit. We're working with, you know, our vertical launch to work out how we sequence all of this through. Because any other subsequent launch that we have now, because we've got a working spaceport, it's, we, don't, we don't need to prove it. So it's now a question of customers coming along and saying, right, we want to use your spaceport because we've got satellites to uh, launch. And that's the really cool thing about it, saying, you've got a working spaceport that's yeah what's the process of root cause analysis after that because presumably you've got an abundance of data it must be incredibly data rich yeah i mean it's so virgin so i mean the the telemetry these i remember the telemetry is fantastic it really is um and it's all it's 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 virgin's data right because it's their commercial launch i i I remember shooting off what are known as sea dart missiles in the southwest approaches and they're fantastic. I mean, they go, you know, they go up to Mach two within about the first two seconds, and then off they go. They were they were um, anti aircraft missiles, and and the telemetry that you used to get back was on a was on a paper tape with a with a pen with an electrical pen <laughs> that you could smell burning on there. And you had about eleven lines that you'd look at, and you'd spend the next three days trying to work out what it says. Uh, the Virgin data was just repl- I mean, it just had everything that was there. And they're working through that, you, you know. And, and it, it is it is we have to work through what we're, what are known as ITAR constraints. So that's about the provision of data between the UK and the US. But they've appointed an independent investigator, and uh, they're working through that data. And uh, at the moment, and they, they they tell me they think they know what it is. Publicly, they said they think it was a a fuel filter in the in the second stage but of course when you go back as you, as you say the root cause analysis was that the root cause or was it something else they need to do all of their analysis on that now yeah. and then and then go through another period of testing because they've got rocket 8 and rocket 9 in production as well at the moment um, for the next set of customers um, and then they'll have to test everything right through the end of the system you know throughout the system in order to make sure that they find the right root cause and can uh, can rectify it before they go uh, before they go back I think in general, when you when you operate a continuous improvement culture, very similar to what you're saying, you learn the most from your failures. That's how you learn. And you might try five or six, seven, eight, nine different countermeasures before you find the one that fixes the problem. Yeah. Now, in general, on a manufacturing line in a factory or in an organisation that's that's producing products, the cost of those failures is probably quite minimal. I can imagine on, in, in the space industry, the cost of the learning and the failure could be quite high. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is. Um, and that's, that's. I mean, yeah, that's why companies sometimes burn through quite a lot of capital and they have quite a lot of private venture and private equity investment. And the you know, sensible ones look at it and say, actually, I've got to have enough I've got to have enough capital to work on to keep my company going, anticipating a failure. Because if you're doing it commercially, your revenue comes from putting satellites into orbit. So if you don't do that, you lose your revenue. So you've you've got to be you've got to make sure that you've got sufficient capital in order to get over those failures. And I mean, we're changing all the time, of course. And Elon Musk's always breaking these the, the model. But you kind of say that your first launch is always a 50-50. It's as likely to succeed as it is to fail. And then you improve your statistics with the second and third launch. So early launches are quite quite high. Risk. I mean, this was the sixth launch for Virgin Orbit, and their, their first test launch, which didn't have any customers on it, they had a failure then. But this was this; they'd had five successful launches, and so this was, yeah, this was unfortunate. It's probably not the, the, the word for it, but certainly unanticipated was was definitely uh, the case. But you'll go again. Yes, and I'm sure it'll be a success next time. Yeah, we, we, we will, and we're working, as I say, with other with other vertical launch providers who who equally have the same challenge as well is the plan longer term to to launch human beings from uk shores the, no there's, there's there's no plans for human spaceflight from the uk we're not you know, space tourism doesn't doesn't feature as a policy goal and and personally i don't i, I don't think that space tourism is necessarily you know, it's not a sustainable issue for our planet i mean the only thing that i would say about some of the work that that is being done for human spaceflight whether it's with virgin galactic or whether it's with uh whether it's blue origin 
is that it brings the cost of access to space down. And therefore, if you're doing microgravity experimentation on an academic point of view, you, you can you can put experiments up and you can learn an awful lot for, from it, you know, whether it's from a biological field or medical field or for a technological field. You know, some of the things that you can do, like semiconductor production in space, gives you much purer, uh, uh, purer production. So... I, I, space tourism in itself, no, but but the fact that that's driving down the cost of access to space, I think, is is the benefit that it'll bring. Yeah, I've got to ask you the question. I know you probably get this all the time. In recent years, where we found all of these uh, other planets in other solar systems, orbiting stars and stuff like that, what's your view on alien life and stuff? Do you believe that there is life out there? <laughs> but how long have we got? We've only really got a couple of minutes left, and we haven't done we, have, we haven't done our quick fire questions yet either. I know uh, we'll do this quick. Um, um, it's really that's a, that's a really that demands a much much longer answer. I mean, I would I think I would be but the short answer is yeah. I mean, there is some form of life. There has to be. I mean, this can't be a quirk yeah. of, of of nature. The question is what form it features in, really, because you can't assume that they've all um, evolved at the same rate as as humans. Much back to my Voyager piece. I mean. I, I would sense that if you if if you if you subscribe to the point of view that actually it's more likely to be robotics that does most of the exploration in the deep universe than biological beings, and unless those ro- robots become biological beings in the future, uh, then it's more likely to be some form of um, of robot that that we we come across. But if if you then think about that a little bit further, as you go from narrow AI to broad AI, and then uh, machines start to think for themselves, and they start to build for themselves, and they start to improve themselves without human interaction, you might find that hundreds of years down the line, you've got robots that are exploring space. They're evolving in their own way, and the robots almost become a race in themselves, if you kind of think that through. And yeah. therefore, you might find that it's not the original source or the human or the being that's put it's 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 the extension of their robots it blows your mind when you think about it but I, I, th- I think some of the work that the James Webb telescope has been doing in terms of identifying deep deep space when you think of the universe as 14.6 billion years old and we can go back and look within about 400 400 million years of the start of time or the big bang it's quite 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 extraordinary really and Gaia as well who's is another exploration mission that's looking at deep space and exoplanets I mean it's yeah, I could go on for hours, to be quite honest, man. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours about it. Let's get into our quick fire questions then, because this is this is a bit of fun. So what we do, Ian, is we do, it's called the yes-no game. You can't answer yes or no. Perhaps we should have started that with the alien question. Yeah. That would have been a good one, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I'm going to fire you random questions at pace, and you cannot say yes or no. All right. And you've got to try and last the 60 seconds. You up for that? Yeah, go on, we'll give it a go. Right, we have 60 seconds on the clock. Do not say yes or no. It's easy as that. Have you ever lied about having seen a movie? There's a number of things I could say about movies that I have or haven't seen them as well, but um, there are probably a few that I've said I have seen, but I haven't. <laughs> Do you ever talk to yourself? I quite often talk to myself in my mind. Do you ever talk to your pets? I always talk to my pets. They're the best form of advice. Do you sing silly songs to your pets? Uh, only if they sing them to me first. Have you ever hidden a snack so that nobody else can find it and then eat it first? Never. If a future version of you time travelled to this moment, do you think the two of you would get along? Uh, I think we'd get on like a house on fire. <laughs> Are you secretly an alien inside a human robot? Uh, I, I, I can't answer that. Have you ever made a ridiculous impulse purchase? You did it! <laughs> you did it! That was really good. I'm really impressed. It's quite hard, really, isn't it? It is, but you didn't look stressed at all. You just you can tell that you work in an industry that is high pressure. <laughs> yeah, big, it's a big sticker, big couple of yellow stickers. I said, do not say yes or no. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Not at all. Um, just before I let you go, Ian, is there is there anything that's because um, I know there's some apprenticeships that you're I've currently seen um, advertised on the internet for the UK Space Agency. How do people find out more about that? Yeah, if, if they if they if that's a really good point as well. If, if you if you look up space internships, then there's you'll see all of the links there, um, and there's some great resources through the UK Space Agency. Uh, if 
you look us up online as well for schools, for teachers, for youngsters, and some great cool photographs as well. But but certainly for those of you who are thinking about some form of internships and getting involved with it, then uh, look up spin, what we call spin turns, but space interns. Spin turns, love it. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, thanks, Ian. I really appreciate your time today. It's been amazing. All right, Matt. Sorry to cut it a bit short. We could go on for this for hours, couldn't we, really? <laughs> it's all good. Thank you so much. So some key takeaways from today's discussion with Ian. Even when the stakes are really, really high and the cost of failure can be massive, it's still where we learn the most. And failure is part of continuous improvement. So so we shouldn't be afraid to fail. Failure is such a natural thing for human beings to do. So, you know, when you are working on your continuous improvement projects and you're looking for the right countermeasure, you're looking for the right solution, you might not get it right first time. So failure, even in the space industry, happens. We dust ourselves off. And we go again, we learn from that. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Something else I picked up from Ian, which I found amazing, is the way that the space industry is so invested in people. Ian spoke about how at the recent space launch in Cornwall, the buzz where everybody was pulling together, everyone was seeing off obstacles that came up, like the fishermen coming into the the launch zone and, and having to clear them out. It was amazing to hear how everybody can pull together, everybody going for the same goal, everybody knows their role, and that is pure lean. That's great lean leadership, Um, and I love to hear that. I really, really do. Um, And if you're interested in getting involved, if if you're a young person listening to this now and you think, wow, do you know what the space industry could be for me, then have a look at the internships that Ian referenced. They sound super exciting. If I was 20 years younger, I'd be all over that. I really, really would. And you heard Ian himself. He said he'll ring me. If there's an opportunity to go to space, he's going to give me a bell. He's going to let me know. So, you know, the next episode could be coming live from Earth orbit. Incredibly unlikely, but it could be. That brings us to an end of this episode of the Ever Celine podcast. Thank you so much to Ian for joining us today and spending some time with us. It really was a dream come true. Uh, hearing about how the UK space industry is taking off, um, also hearing about how continuous improvement forms a part of that with the benchmarking and knowledge share that goes on between the different agencies and the commercial side. It's just fascinating. Uh, understanding the root cause analysis that's going on, the data that's there to look at what happened with the Virgin Galactic recently on the space launch in Cornwall. Honestly, it's mind-blowing, and I think Ian and I could have gone on for a couple of days. (laughs) It's just absolutely brilliant. If you like the sound of today's show and would like to hear more, please subscribe and follow the Everseline podcast at everseline.com. We'll also find episodes that you may have missed. Also, if you're on the socials, search for the Everseline podcast. Give us a follow and let me know all about your lean efforts because I really would love to hear them. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. And don't forget, Everseline, you know it makes sense. The Everseline podcast is researched, produced and recorded by Matt Sims. Visit everseline.com to find out more. Hold up. 